Okay, so about 7.30 this morning, I got a text from Kristen that said that we were down three child care workers, and um, one lady we knew wasn't coming back, and so that really made us down four nursery workers, child care nursery, and I was like, yes, they can just play music and I can go keep the nursery this morning, (laughs) but um, I didn't get to do that. That's where I'm the most comfortable, so... Okay, um, I just know that your um, discussion and conversation with each other had to be so beautiful this morning because this passage itself is so rich and so wonderful. So I just pray that you've already in this week meditated and let it um, go into your heart and that your discussion today um, even applied that more. And so now this is just maybe a bow on top. I mean, this is probably not going to be any new information for you, but um, just a time for us to kind of sit back and let it soak in a little bit more. Um, I've titled this, Always Access to Sovereign Grace. And um, sovereign grace has become um, a beautiful phrase for me uh, in my study of this passage. So let's, we're going to think and look at what sovereign grace Means, But before we do, we'll talk a little bit about the context of our passage in the book of Hebrews itself. Um, this is a transitional passage, and it's what you maybe call a pivot passage, so that we were kind of looking this way, and now we've got this passage, and then we're going to turn and look this way. And before this passage, we've been... Um, talking a lot about Jesus being the Son of God. And in our passage today, Jesus being the Son of God was mentioned twice. But the pivot is now we're opening up a little bit more about who Jesus is. And in this passage, we learn that he is not only the Son of God, but he is also our high priest. And him being our priest is mentioned six times in this passage. And in the remainder of this section about Christ being our priest, um, it's mentioned 17 times. So all that to say, those numbers usually never mean, mean that much to me when pastors throw them out there. But what it does mean is that our focus is now turning toward this huge and wonderful and beautiful concept of Jesus being our great high priest. So this section has a little bit of both, him being the son of God and the high priest. Um, And this next section that we will be studying together goes all the way to 10, 21, 22. And so in this section, it says, now that we have this great high priest, let us draw nigh. And at the very end of 10, 21, and 22, again, it says, we have this high priest, let us draw nigh. So that's the bookends. So drawing nigh is the point of him being our high priest, is that now we get to individually draw nigh to God. And that's a huge and very radical concept both for the hearers of this passage and surprisingly, I bet we'll find that that it's also a radical concept for us because we uh, cannot imagine what free grace really looks like. That's beyond even our comprehension. 
So in this passage, structurally, um, we're given um, two exhortations, and then we're given um, kind of the why or the how of these exhortations. The first exhortation we see is to hold firm our faith. That's something that we do, an active hold fast, an exhortation to hold fast to your confession. And then we're told to approach the throne. Um, that's also an action, something we're supposed to do. We are supposed to move toward and approach this throne. But then we're given, um, how does that happen? Why can we do that? And that happens because we have this great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. That is the why of the exhortations. Okay, enough of the structure. I think as moderns, the whole idea of having a priest is lost on us. Um, We don't really have a category for that. We have a category for Christ being our Savior, for Christ being the Creator, for Him being our friend. But when we hear the word priest, we may think of a Catholic church or an Episcopal church. We think of a man that's in that role. We, um, in our day and time, don't really have a, a... picture or an image or anything tangible to hold on to for the idea of a priest. Um, We don't have a reference point. So is Christ a priest like these people are a priest? How can we even relate to him as a priest? How can we discover the beauty and the necessity and the benefits of Christ being our priest when we actually don't quite even have a category for that? The readers and the hearers of Hebrews, um, the audience of Hebrews, um, definitely had a perspective and an understanding of who the priest is and what the priest does. But for both them and for us to begin to comprehend what this means for us to have a priest, look back at our passage from last week um, in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We teach the children this. We teach them that sin is anything we think, anything we say, anything we do that breaks, anything we do that breaks God's law. And 24-7, God is seeing what we do. He knows our thoughts And he hears what we say. So even in our youngest children's lives, we are teaching them that nothing is hidden from God. None of our thoughts are hidden from him. None of our actions are hidden from him. None of our words are hidden from him. And before him, all of our lives are laid bare and open. There is no hiding place from the holy God. So early on, we hope that our children and hope that our adults understand this always and ever-present need for something to be done about this ever-present sin. Because we also teach the children that this sin separates us from God and um, nothing we can do can bridge that gap between the sin that has separated us from God and the holiness of God that it's only in Jesus. And we have some more little actions and stuff that y'all don't have to know those. But um, 
So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he sees our, he sees our actions, knows our thoughts, and hears our words. Every one of us is totally exposed and helpless. But the Israelites got this, um, maybe not so much in the heart as much as they got it visually. Uh, they had this constant reminder. They knew it well, and they were immersed in the relentless effort to deal with this reality of then how does this sinful person, these sinful people, have then access and um, how can they have presence with God? Um, I'm from Mississippi, and I do love the smell of any part of a pork, any part of a pig smoking on the grill. Not a brisket, but there's a distinct smell of pork that's being smoked all night. Um, and then the benefits of that, of course, the next day. Um, but while I love that that smell and it's a happy occasion and you can't wait for whatever the event is, if it were something, it needs to be occasionally. Um, it doesn't need to be what I smell 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It would become nauseating. Um, a case in point, I have to sleep with a dryer sheet on my nose if I'm cooking something in the crock pot because all night long I'm so aware of whatever's cooking in the crock pot that I have this dryer sheet on my nose all night so I can't smell it. So um, although there's something good happening both in the crock pot and in the smoker with the ribs or whatever, um, it's not something that you want with you all the time. That's my point. Um, however, for the Israelites, this constant smell of smoke, this constant visual of something being consumed so that they weren't consumed by the holiness of God was an ever-present fact for them. When they went to church, it smelled like smoke constantly. Their clothes smell like smoke. The priests smell like smoke. If, can you imagine being married to the priest and, like, you can't wash it out? You can't get it out of your hair? Um, this was their image. So there were times that the, that the meat was totally consumed. There were times that they actually ate the meat that was, um, that was being sacrificed once a year, as you talked about in your class, the high priest would go into this secret place that only he could go, which was called the Holy of Holies. There was great ritual and um, exactness to how he went in and offered the sacrifice. Um, even when he entered into the room, it was already filled with the smoke of incense. So there was just this tangible constant before their eyes, something is dying so that I don't die. Something is being punished so that I won't be punished. There is a substitution for me on that altar. And I'm not on that altar because there is a substitution. And so I think that's that's a little bit lost in our modern world. Thankfully, it's lost. But when they heard the word priest... They could smell it. If you just said the priest, it, it evoked a memory. It triggered something in their brain. 
The word priest was not ambiguous and abstract or alien to them. It was vivid, riveting, and visceral. Um, They could smell what it was to have a priest. The temple itself was defined by this constant smell. Um, And they got the idea that God himself was this consuming fire. That the priest, when he entered into that most holy place, that it was a place of consuming the sacrifice and then, of course, consuming him if he didn't have the right heart toward God when he approached this place of holy of holies. Um, when Darwin went down to Mansfield to preach at Chris Genshear's church, Uh, we were just walking around and we dipped in the nursery for a minute to just kind of see what was happening there. And you had to go behind this. They had a curtain set up and then you went through this curtain and the nursery was back there behind the curtain. And Darwin said, oh, this is kind of like going into the Holy of Holies. (laughs) And the nursery worker said, yes, and we tie a rope on us before we go in there in case the children kill us. You know, we want somebody to be able to pull us out. Um, but you get the picture that it was, it was ominous and it was ever-present. When you smell burning animals day in and day out, and when, you are try- and when you're tying a rope on someone's waist who is going into the presence of God to make atonement for your sins, you understand what a priest men- means. You've got it. You've lived it. We, we haven't lived it, and so we may not get it. So having this vivid concept of sacrifice day in and day out, they were tempted at this point to go back to what they knew, go back to what they had experienced, and they were wondering how could this man who died on the cross, a man like you and and me, how could he be the sacrifice that we need? How how is this working? And so far, it's not really working for our favor because we're in trouble and we're always um, we're fearful for our lives. So how could this be working for us? So they were halting and fearful. We, on the other hand, can be arrogant and ignorant of this need that we have for this constant and once for all atoning sacrifice for our sin. So we are not as heavy laden, perhaps, with the reality of our sin that would make us aware of our need of our priest, um, of our great high priest. And we're ignorant, perhaps, and arrogant in how we feel that we can boldly um, without this awareness of his position as priest, that we can just kind of buddy up to Jesus as our friend, which he is, the friend that sticks closer to us than than a brother. But there's always and forever, and should be in our minds too, this concept of his once-for-all sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement for the punishment that we deserved. So I don't mean to be I don't mean to ask this in an irreverent way, but when did Jesus become our high priest? You ever, have you thought about that? Did you guys talk about that in your class? Of course, in the counsel of God and in His eternal plan, Jesus has always been our priest. 
It was always the father's plan, and it was always the son's desire to please the father. But in time and space and in history, some amazing things happened in order for him to actively become our high priest. The first is, of course, when he was actually on the cross, and he says, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. And then he breathed his last. At that moment, of course, our sins were being forgiven and being atoned for. But in that moment, he was the sacrifice for our sins. He was the lamb and the sacrifice. He was both at the same time. He made himself the sacrifice for our sins, and he gave up his life to atone for our sins. Death came to him instead of death coming to us. Punishment came to him instead of punishment coming to us. So in that moment, when he breathed his last breath, he demonstrated on the cross he had been the lamb offered on the altar. He was the priest offering a sacrifice to God, and the sacrifice was himself. The sacrifice was not the blood of a lamb. It was the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And as the writer tells us again and again, in this one offering, he put sin away as no animal could ever do it. The repetition of the sacrifices continued to tell the Israelites, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. You have to do it again, you have to do it again. Next year, next year, next, over and over again. It's not enough. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It was enough. It was the once and for all complete satisfactory punishment for our sins that they deserve. Okay, now think about that for a minute. Do you ever, do you feel like, do you live your life thinking that there still needs to be some punishment for your sin? Do you live your life thinking that there is still something that separates you and God? Do you live your life in this fear? When when we were on our, just this last little trip we made, we saw people crawling on their hands and knees to the cross. And I just broke down and cried. And I was like, they don't, they've missed the whole point. They've missed the whole point that there's nothing else we can do. It's done. Jesus said, it is finished. Nothing has to be repeated. Um, Our sin now is completely removed, and we just can't believe it. We cannot grasp it. This is why we need the priest. Jesus is our priest. And at that moment when he said, it is finished, the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the place where the sacrifices were made, you've talked about this in your class today, was ripped apart from the top to the bottom like God's hands from heaven came down and ripped the curtain apart saying, no longer is there any separation between my people and, and me. 
that separation is over. Now you walk freely into the Holy of Holies. You walk freely in and have access and presence with, with God. You have acceptance with him. And then when Jesus arose, he ascended to the very throne room of God. God announced, this is my son. He has all authority in heaven and earth. So Jesus went through the curtain of heaven. You just, you can kind of like picture heaven is like the new curtain that Jesus went through in his ascension. And he's now at the right hand of God the Father. And he is now the priest and the king. Um, like Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king. And Somebody else gets to tell you all about him in a few weeks. But he was a foreshadowing of Christ who is both the priest and the king. And now he's alive, reigning and ruling us as king for his people and interceding as a priest for his people. How is this kingly, priestly throne described in verse 16, though? What kind of place is it? Is it a place that's still smoldering? Is it a place of fear? Is it a place where we have to have a rope tied on us in case something doesn't go right? No. What kind of throne is it? It is a throne of grace. That's the only thing that's there. Grace is there. Do you get it? It's grace because there is a there has already been judgment. There's already been condemnation. There's already been one for you that was substituted for you. True atonement for sin has happened. Thrown because it's grace with a sovereign rule now. Not just sympathy and kindness. Not something that we uh, go through the right motions. And maybe if we you know, do this little dance or do this crawl or whatever, we'll find favor with God. No, it is constant sovereign grace toward us. Uh, Spurgeon says it this way, this text conveys to us the idea of grace enthroned. It is a throne. And who sits on the throne? Grace sits on the throne. Grace personified sits on the throne. That is the name of the person sitting on the throne is grace. That was my words. That wasn't his words. Um, let's see. What does he say? Grace personified sits on the throne. Unlimited might and boundless power to do us good. Grace reigns. Grace reigns for each one of us. Grace that can't be stopped. It rules your life and it rules my life. Grace that can't be contained rules your life. And it rules my life. And think of the power now that is defined by grace. His power now is full of favor toward you. So when he acts as a sovereign king, he's acting with grace. He's acting with favor. He's not acting with condemnation. He's not acting with punishment. He's not acting with a stiff arm. He's acting with grace. And this grace always brings help. At exactly the right time, as our passage says. One translation puts it like this. To receive mercy and find grace for timely help. It's always at the right time because God is in his, in his sovereignty decides when it will come and how it will come. Always, at all times, in every circumstance, in every struggle and failure, in every relationship, in every responsibility, in every challenge, in the midst of every fear, when we are exhausted, when we feel hopeless, and when there really isn't a way that we can see out, 
we have access to sovereign, sovereign, sovereign acting grace. It is our physical suffering and emotional suffering, even to the point of death, of our hopes and dreams when we're tempted to not live out our confession. When our life circumstances don't match with our our view of ourselves and our view of God, like they weren't matching for the hearers of in our the audience of our text here, it's like how could we be God's favorite people? And now this is happening to us. Maybe we better go back to where we really, you know, it seemed like we were God's favorite people. So it's in those moments of our lives when the vault, when the ceiling of heaven, or when feels like brass, and God has to be redefined for us. It's in those times that we ourselves are tempted to not live out our confession. This is another paraphrase from Spurgeon. He delights to look upon those who have wandered from him in order to show his restoring grace. He delights to look upon the brokenhearted and the downcast in order to show his consoling grace. Don't you see there is grace to be had, friends, grace to be had of every kind, or rather the same grace acting in different ways, meeting our needs in every way. God delights to make his grace glorious, so he will pour it out abundantly upon us. There is a rainbow around about the throne like an emerald, the emerald of his compassion and his love. What a great happiness awaits us when we can believe this and live and breathe his grace. Um, But we have to carefully understand what this grace looks like. This grace is not necessarily our circumstances, as the modern church would want us to believe. Grace is this acceptance that we have with God. Grace is um, our access that we have to God. And through our darkest times um, in the past three years, we have experienced um, something in our family that will forever change our family. So you may come into contact with death itself. You may come into contact with the death of dreams, the death of hopes. Um, You may come into contact with life being over as you know it and having to start all over again. It is in those moments when God himself is very confusing that we can come to him in this persistent prayer of grace and persistently asking God, may I know you in this? May I have access to you? I don't know who you are at this moment, but you are the suffering one. You suffered and you are acquainted with what it means to suffer. You're acquainted with what I'm going through. This is not foreign to you. It is not something that catches you by surprise. May I know you. May I have you in the middle midst of this. Our prayers are not just words, and they're not just thoughts. Our prayers are this entering into a conversation that's already happening in heaven, where Jesus is already there acting on our behalf. He's already pleading the merit of his blood. He's already saying, I have died for her. He's saying constantly, Only grace will come to you. Only favor will come to you. 
I am yours if you will have me. That is what's constantly going on in the heavenly places right now. And so our prayers are like the 18-month-old that bells out of the crib at 12 o'clock and then bells out again at 2 o'clock and then bells out again at 6 o'clock and down the hall to find you to say, I can't sleep. Can I get in bed with you? Can I sleep with you? Can I be with you? Baby words. And we don't say to that 18-month-old, wait till you come back in and you're a man and you've grown up and you've got the right words to say. Then you can come in and ask me for these things. With baby talk, we listen and we anxiously, what are they saying? What do they need? I'm, I'm here for you. Those are the kinds of conversations we're to have with God. It is like the Holy Spirit takes the hand of our heart and the Holy Spirit says, come in here. Let's talk about this. And it's talking. It's having this constant conversation. Prayer doesn't have to be, dear God, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of words. Amen. That's a kind of prayer. That's a beautiful kind of prayer. And that's the kind of prayer that we pray in certain circumstances. But this high priest means that we have this constant access to God all day. And he's with us. And we take him with us. And we have this inner conversation with him where we're saying, okay, it doesn't look like it right now, but I'm going to find your favor in this circumstance. I'm, I'm undone. I don't get life right now. I don't get why this is happening. I'm tired. I'm this. I'm that. I'm confused. I don't get... I'm going to tell you about that as frankly as I can tell you, as honestly as I can tell you. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to talk with you all day, all night about this life that we have, this life that I have with you. That's the grace, is this constant access. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't have confidence in um, hardly anything, actually. I fake it a lot. But I have very little, I have very little confidence in anything. But our prayers are where we have confidence. That's the only place we have confidence is in our prayers. Um, prayer comes and is always entering into the heaven. We're entering into this heavenly conversation with boldness and honesty. May we always, always be drawing near to the throne of sovereign grace. May we find and always find in a very timely way the help we need in our darkness.